Hey, this is Thomas with Believe in the Run. This is Robbie with Believe in the Run. And this is Megan with Believe in the Run. And you're listening to The Drop, and hopefully it's not your first time, but if it is your first time, you have tuned into a podcast about running, about running adjacent topics, sneaker topics. I mean, pretty much, am I missing anything, Robbie? Mm, general life topics. And mustache grooming. Yeah, that's one of the top, this is like number one in the rankings for mustache grooming tips. Yeah, so... Grab a hold of your seat because it's going to be a bumpy ride. And your tiny mustache comb. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Before we get into it. Yeah. Did you, what kind of socks did you wear this morning? Oh, of course I wore features. Boom. I wore. He uh, did. But yeah, uh, I wear features. You know why? It was damp and rainy out. Mm. But it didn't rain. It was just damp. My it shoes rained last was, night. My shoes still felt like I know. they rained. Yeah. So I don't know what that was from. Sweat. <laughs> okay, sweat. But uh, yeah, if you're wearing cotton socks, you would have hated it. With my uh, thin, thin synthetic socks. Yeah, we all know you get your socks at TJ Maxx or Ross's and on the clearance section. Get get rid of that, John. Oh no, I I only go for a family. Not you. Owned, I'm talking. I'm oh. talking about everyone on this on okay. this podcast. Probably does. Yeah, because I go with family owned businesses like Features, and yeah. uh, get those anatomically correct socks. That's like that hug your insole. It's like like socks for your kids where they're like left and right foot. I need that too. Yeah. Anyways. Anyway, yeah. So uh, you know what's weird about that? Features is actually a sponsor of this podcast. <laughs> so uh, let's let them give them some love. Yeah. You, if you uh, buy any features on their website at features.com, it's F-E-E-T-U-R-E-S.com. You can save 10% by using code BELIEVE10. So check it out. BELIEVE10. All right. Speaking of BELIEVE. Uh, we're believing they're on, as we already said. So mm-hmm. let's talk about us. Enough about <laughs> features. Yeah. All right. I like starting with May because she's usually got the most impressive training. And once again, like I did a hard workout today and I know that Megan did a harder workout. So can you describe the workout? Because you told me and I was I'm like, look it up like, on Strava as she's talking. First off, how many total miles was it? Today? Yeah. It was 14 and a half miles. There was a chunk of marathon pace, then some 800s, then a chunk of marathon pace, and then some 30 seconds on and off, hard, easy effort. And then when you finished the, the last piece, it was like marathon effort and then Straight 5K. Into the 30 seconds. So hard. not a rest. Like you went from marathon pace into like, it was basically, I, I think that's training for the finish line. Oh, you need that kick. Yeah. I'm, I never have a kick, so it's good practice. Uh, it hurt a little bit out there. But I think I would rather talk about Saturday's long run because we were in Florida. Oh, oh yeah, let's hear and this. Brutal. It was the so it was an easy run. I didn't have any pace goals, and it was the hardest twenty mile run I have ever done. Ever, ever, ever? really? Ever. It was up there. It was up there for me as like a total grind. It started at eighty two degrees with seventy nine seventy nine dew, dew point, and the real feel was ninety seven degrees, oh. and. Like, as soon as you walked out the door, it was like you felt like you were in a sauna. Also, I run on Amelia Island. I know there's no shade on, in that island. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, there was some oh, shade. Like, okay. I was hunting shade for that because we we both were running, and I saw actually saw Megan on part of it, and she gave me a call during one part of it, and was like, turn around here. There's killer flies at this. Okay, so, okay, so wait. So I start out. Everything's, yeah. like, fine. It's just hot. And then around, like, mile four or five, I'm running, and what I think is a Stick turns out to be a snake. Florida's crazy. Luckily, I I landed on it like where the um 
the groove of my shoe is. So like it didn't, I didn't squish it. I was like a smaller snake. Yeah. But it flew up onto like no the back way. of my calf. <laughs> and you know that like slimy, like I like, <laughs> I just kept running because I was so freaked out. So then I go over this bridge crossing, which only half of the bridge has a place yeah, for runners. And then you have to jump over a median and then you're just on the bridge Wait, with all the cars. Be before you say that you're on the bridge with all the cars. So you're chugging along down there. And when you cross over that, like it has a safe place to run and then you go into the not safe, but you have to kind of like hurdle a bridge and you've been now running for, I think you're about six or seven miles in by yeah. that time. So to lift your leg up to like oh, yeah. above waist it's like height, hurdles. Yeah. It, it hurts. Oh, so it was like an, like a median, yes. like, yeah. like a barrier. Yeah. yeah. So oh. I had to climb over okay. it. So then I got past that and then we got to this it area. sounds like a run I would go on. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I was picturing you there. <laughs> We got to this area that I was all excited about because it's shaded, but it's like right by a swamp area. And so the trail's all nice and you have like the mossy trees. Like there's a wooden, wooden like bridge over some marshy area. And mm -hmm. then you go into like almost like a jungle. Yeah. Is this like behind that Radisson or whatever? Like No, this no. is. It's past. Uh, um, I don't know exactly where it is. Yeah. But Okay. Yeah. So I'm like, this is going to be great. No sun wonderful and then all of a sudden this horse fly starts like following me around and i'm like there's no way this thing can stay with me i'll just keep running so i'm running further into this thick forest area and then it's like there's two horse flies and then there's 10 horse flies and i'm two and a half miles deep into oh, yeah. this woodsy okay, area I and i have to about. turn around and i am being attacked by like 15 horse flies they're going at my head at my legs oh, and i get a phone call insane. and like i'm like this better be an emergency Make make that tell him what you And I just called him while I'm running and I can't stop because there's flies all over me. And I'm like, do not come down this way. <laughs> turn around. And he's like, there's already a fly here. He's like, I'm definitely turning Not just around. fly. There, like I was it, I was a steamy turd. Like I had a little swarm. Yeah. And the thing was you're you're running, so normally if you keep moving, you can avoid the flies. Right. right. But they were just they were landing on me anyway. You. And That's they, crazy. they were the bites were stinging. Like I would get yeah. like two on my back and I'd be like doing that jump. Jake. Oh. I looked like an insane well, person, like running and like flailing. It's, you know, was it the Egan's Park Greenway? Was that where you were running? Is we that just run uh, A1A and okay. then it dead ends. It goes over that one Bay Area. It might be bridge. that though. It's, it's like on like a marshland. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a paved bike path. Okay. This, it's a little bit different. Uh, but anyways, so the one time I was running down there in the, egan's creek greenway and there's like some trails that actually go through like wooded areas yeah. like dirt trails and i had to take a shit so bad <laughs> <laughs> and it was like i was like not there's no way i was making it to like civilization and it was like early in the morning this is last this is during covid so it's like no i didn't have a mask with me or anything either yeah because you could have wiped with that <laughs> yeah so i just had like had pull off in the thick of like the brush in the woods and it's same temperatures yeah, yeah. and i was getting bit up so <laughs> bad like just strip like pouring sweat yeah it was the most disgusting situation i've ever been uh. in my life and that's saying something anyways continue yeah. so then what well, like what happened with your um like so how far in was that that was probably around 10 or 11 miles yeah you were I think so. You're only halfway, and that was you already. Or I wasn't even halfway. You were like seven and a half miles. Yeah, in. and so I turned around because I wanted to do an easy ten out and back, like just make it easy yeah. even. And I couldn't go that far because of the flies. So I turned around. <laughs> I think it was like seven and a half, 
and got out of the flies. Like my fastest miles were that section <laughs> of trying to escape the flies. So you just need flies in the last pretty 10K much. of your marathon. Yeah. Uh, and then from there, it was pretty uneventful other than I ran out of water and I thought I was going to die. So how did you re resupply? I didn't. Oh, really? I made it really? to 16. I wore a Solomon uh, hydration vest. I had two 20-ounce bottles of scratch and water, which I went through in 16 miles. And then the last four, I just basically... Drink your sweat. Didn't you say you were chafing too from the vest? Oh, oh the yeah. Vest. I have like where the, um, it's like, like elastic. Uh-huh. Like uh, the chest enclosure yeah. or whatever. It was basically just like scraping my chest oh. the whole time. Yeah. Super fun. I mean, I did, I did 20 down there too. And it was like Megan said, it was probably one of the nastiest runs. But like, I was like, I knew like going out the door, you open the door and it was like you hot breath on your face mm. and you were just like, oh. And I'm like, okay, I'll just acclimate. I know the first three miles are going to suck, but you just didn't, you just didn't get used to it. And I was wearing a Nathan pack with a 1.5 liter, uh, reservoir in it. Yeah. And I drank that all pretty quick and I had only like three miles to go. I had a 5k to go and I stopped at a circle K and I went in, I filled the bladder with ice and Powerade 85 cents. <laughs> and um, I, I, I drank the entire 1.5 liters of Powerade and ice melted. Um, I drank it all before I was done with the 20 miles. That's crazy. So with you're probably still miles, dehydrated. I was, I was super, <laughs> super. But the worst part for me was I wore the Adidas um, Adios Pro 2. And it kind of, the way that the rods work, they kind of go up underneath the pad behind your big toe. So it kind of kicks your foot out like almost makes you pronate a little bit like, but, or wait, not pronate the opposite pronate, uh, uh, supinate. Yeah. So my ankles were kind of falling out and lately my ankles have been bothering me anyway. And the way that the roads were set up there, they're set up to drain the rain. So you had the cambered pavement mm -hmm. and it was killing me when I was Meg called me. I turned around. I was halfway through that little forest area. It was disgusting. And, I see, um, I see where you're at. okay. We, I turn around and I'm coming back and I had to go back over that bridge and like it was hurting my leg to run with my like trying to keep my ankle straight on that wow. road. So stuff. you're not so. using the Adidas Pro for race day. No, that thing is over. I had the <laughs> Pro 2. I like I think I like the Pro 1 better, hmm. the original better. But um, yeah, I, I just I thought I'd give it another shot because I haven't been wearing it. You know, I've been wearing the Metaspeed Sky. I've been wearing the RC Elite 2 um, and now a lot more with the Alpha Fly. And I was like, I, I should give this another shot. Uh, I feel bad that I did. So, yeah, it well, was so miserable. Well, you're still running like 730s though, Meg? That's ridiculous. Yeah. Or slow. I'm, okay, I'm looking at the map, and you are like on the south of the, the yeah. island. So different. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, yeah but man, look that, at my last mile. <laughs> like an 840. Oh, it was 853. <laughs> <laughs> I died. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, I don't think I hit the eights at all. Like I was like solid I believe slow it. run. It was I would just, just be like, oh, you did have a massive relative effort according to Strava. Yeah, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> it was twenty a, miles. It was a heavy lift. That's crazy, man. Oh, you did striders in the middle? No, I was joking because of the flies. Oh, because the flies. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was trying to escape them. <laughs> That's hilarious, man. Yeah. Well, so yeah, I did not have that much of an adventure this past week. I did have a good adventure. I went trail running with Matt Kacharski up in Balmer County, Han. Um, it was county folk really 
know how to party up there. He had like, we, uh, I met him at his house and he has a Chevy Scottsdale, like a 1980 pickup truck. It's pretty sweet. The seatbelts don't work in that thing. So we, we, uh, <laughs> drove to the, uh, you know, to like the, to the start of the trail and that was nice. Got there early, did some, uh, got in good elevation, 2000 feet over 12 miles. It was like pretty decent. Jumped in the water, jumped in a waterfall course if there's water i'm there robbie's in it <laughs> dude it felt good no, i'm not gonna lie yeah. and uh, i ran in the la sportiva cyclone or cyclone i don't know which you know has the boa dial similar to the speedland but different because only has one, oh, dial. one yeah um yeah but it was overall a good run and finished it up tailgated had a pickle beer sour which like was really good at the time I don't know. It, it did <laughs> seem really refreshing. <laughs> and then I had, he also had nitro cold brew on tap, like a mini keg of coffee. Yeah, he's serious I was that, like, this, is, that's this amazing. is pretty legit. It was nice. But then, so I got home and then I had like pancakes and bacon, which was nice. Everything's good. And then I start feeling like, nauseous. I was like, oh, it's because I ran like, it was hot out. So it was like relatively hard, 12 miles. And then, I just kept start kept feeling worse and worse. Mm. And then I was like, I feel like I have to throw up and I'm just going to make myself throw up. If people are listening to this podcast right now, they're like, this, these are the saddest people ever. Yeah. <laughs> Our lives are terrible. <laughs> Clearly we're elite athletes. Right? <laughs> exactly. uh, and I hadn't, you know, actually last week I didn't drink at all. Um, and then, so I, and then I just had that one beer that morning, but I was like, I puked for five hours straight. Mm where everything like my throat <laughs> still sounds a little off from saturday that's brutal and uh it was like everything like you know when your insides are turning inside out and you're just like so it, what it did bad. you have you just got a bug yeah i think so and it was just terrible and then so i felt i felt horrible the last uh few days don't worry it was like no like the symptoms didn't align with anything COVID wise. It was like the opposite of <laughs> symptoms. And, uh, and then I just like, so I only went, got back to running this morning since Saturday. So, oh, wow. Yeah. In, in bright side news, other than you getting back to running this morning, it, like coming back from Florida and running here. Yeah. Like normally I'd say it was a swamp here, but it, even though it was kind of swampy, it felt great. Like when we got, when we got. Oh, there. I believe that. Yeah. I, anyone training in Florida through the summer is a hero. And we're, we were in Northern Florida. Right. Yeah. I don't understand how, like how people do that down there or in Louisiana or wherever. I mean, I, I guess you just treat it like altitude where you're like, my paces are going to be. Well, that's what it was. A minute off. It, that's what I felt like the 20 miler was about a minute and a half slower than I would normally run like a 20 miler on an easy pace and i was just like that's just what it is in this heat yeah i mean you're gonna burn yourself <laughs> out if you try to actually hit paces and it's and i don't know out. how you stay hydrated like you can't carry enough water you, you have like one of those water trucks next to you that's what i need and that gives you like truck. a whole new perspective for like jim walmsley doing western states when it's 97 degrees right. out and yeah but that's i that i've done hot weather out west yeah i mean it's I not it's that not bad. humid but like i i would have taken bad water over 
what we were doing in <laughs> Florida. <laughs> All right, you're. I'm gonna hold you to it. Yeah, I mean, we were drenched. Like we, I got back and it's like, it. I've never been so wet. And the thing is that because it is the dew point so high, once you sweat, it doesn't come off you. Yeah, and there's no evaporation. Yeah. Anyway, my workout felt great today. And uh, I love being back in Baltimore. <laughs> it's good to be back. All right, so this is Thomas chiming in for the first time on this podcast to give you a little bit of a break in your running. I hope you're hydrating. And if you're not listening to our Fuel for the Soul podcast, you should be because we talk about hydration. And it's very important. So if you're out there in the heat and you're not hydrating, you're setting yourself up for failure. So if you got a handheld, take a swig. All right, let's move on to some running news talk. UTMB was this past weekend. I mean, it's cool to see it going on finally, like a real race. Yeah. I mean, it was super sad because the I think one of the first races, someone fell off a cliff and died. Yeah. Sorry about that. But um, but then after that, uh, and and I think they had to turn back like a thousand runners. Like in that race. Oh, yeah, because they didn't want people going down there. Yeah. Yeah. But, anyways, but then for the main event, Robbie, once again, bringing the show to a sadness. We gotta just just be in real. I mean, here's what I like our best friend, our very best friend, stays at our house. Not really. Um, uh, Courtney DeWalter. Okay. (laughs) That's never happened, (laughs) nor will it ever happen after that. Um, We've talked to her one a total of one time, so kind but of I've big really deal. felt a connection. <laughs> yeah, said as says everybody who's met her because she's the nicest person in the yeah. world. Yeah, um, but yeah, that was a great podcast. If you haven't listened to that one, by the way, and she finished in. Let me pull it up here. Seventh Nin- overall, nineteen hours. No, it was actually twenty-two. It was first, twenty-two. First female. Oh, was the guy nineteen? Yeah. Okay, Francois Dehane. Who won is the second. Did you have to practice saying his name? No, I've heard someone say it before. I think he just passed it. Frank Oy. That's how that's how I would say it if I didn't hear it before. Frank Oy Dehane. Um What is a, his actual name? Francois de Dehane. Okay. <laughs> that's how someone from Tondoc would say it. Yeah, she finished in twenty two thirty fifty four, which was a course record, by the way. Uh Rory Rory Bozio, the North Face runner. She she had said it in 2013, but the course then she was the one that did a little froggy. Yeah, house she's and stuff. she's <laughs> eating mushrooms on the course. Yeah, she's definitely tripping <laughs> tripping out there in the Chamonix. Yeah, she ate some uh, psychedelic infused cheese on one of the eight stations. <laughs> but anyways, um, she broke the course record, and it's like the course was like two or three kilometers longer now than it was back then. I mean. It was just a dominating performance. She was like up there, like like it just seemed amazing. And and again, it's almost like they kept Chogi winning the Tokyo Olympics. It just didn't look like it was that hard for her. Well, she's like smiling the whole time. Yeah, and high fiving, and yeah, like when you saw the live update, she's just cruising through, and they're like, it's like a, it was almost like a NASCAR pitch pit stop like right. she'd roll in yeah they'd like change her bottles out i think her husband's her like mean uh well that dude support is dude. a stud yeah he's you just sw- exactly switching in out there 
She finished. She finished an hour and a half ahead of the next person. I mean, how many people are going to start running in basketball shorts on the trails? Like they, it's got to be a new thing. Solomon's got to have like the Courtney collection. I think they. I think they do. Are they? They should if they don't. I want to see the men's. Um, yeah. So the men's race. Uh, he finished in twenty twenty forty five fifty nine. So he only finished like what an hour before her or something. Yeah, so it wasn't even 19. Why did I think it was 19? Is that the course record? Mm, it might be. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, she finished. Was she seventh overall? Or? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She was seventh. Yeah, she I mean, was like in that after. Yeah. That's just insane. Crazy. Hey, look. Well, you know, it's actually Lamberger. <laughs> Close to you. <laughs> uh, so on, on running actually had, looking at this here, they had two athletes in the top five of men and women, which is weird because I feel like the trail shoes are trash. Um, sorry. I think, yeah, we won't be getting those trail shoes. Well, here's the thing. It's kind of like how good, a, good a, could they have done <laughs> very good shoes. I mean, I, the thing with Alan's trail shoes, I feel like they're just pretty heavy and they, they're not, uh, they don't have the same like, yeah, but you're not you're not going for speed at UTMB for real. Well, I know, but the, I'm saying they also don't even have like what I would consider good trail characteristics. But eh, yeah. whatever. I mean, it was great. Cor- was Courtney wearing the Ultra Glide? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. She was wearing the Ultra Glide. One of our favorite trail shoes of the year, by the way. Yeah. I mean, this year actually, there's some really nice trail shoes out. There's a lot of choices. If you talk, you can go total high end. With like something like Speedland, you can go, mm-hmm. you know, pretty, you know, lowbrow with some, you know, kind of common stuff. And there's good, good ones all in between. Yeah. I mean, yeah, high end Speedland shoot, which the review is now online with four of our reviewers. Two that, women, two men. Yeah. And Matt wore that when I was running with them Saturday. It really is uh, a great shoe. Uh, obviously, not everyone's going to want to spring 375 for it, but if they do, it's, they're going to be really happy with it. Yeah. And that's the thing. There are options, like depending on what you want out of your trail experience. Yeah. Like if you want a perfect fitting shoe with great grip, you know, responsive feel with a plate, you've got that Speedland SL, uh, yeah. you know, PDX, or you can go with, you just got a new Asics in. Yeah. That's that is the, I'm interested in that. The Fuji yeah. Light. Real simple. The Fuji light looks great. The, now, and uh, the Hoka's and all, which by the way, I just got an, uh, they sent a UTMB package and there was a pair in there, which is nice because that was actually one of my favorite trail shoes. And he got it stolen year. out of his car. Yeah, the first pair got stolen. Like, which, who steals a pair of used trail shoes? That's gross. Like, what are you doing with those? It must have been like, these colors are fire. With a <laughs> with a woman's sizing. <laughs> tiny, tiny man's foot. And then, uh, what was the other? Sh- uh, you know, Merrill, they actually make some really nice trail shoes at like, like 100 bucks. A tray is coming out with one. Yeah, they are. I'm interested about that. It's. I bet it's going to be like it's going to be like the Skechers Razor Trail, which is like, it's works on trails, but it's not really. Eh, we'll see when we get it. Should be interesting. Anyways, enough of that talk. Is there anything else we need to talk about? No. I mean, I I just keep Megan London had no. She was out yeah. of the situation. Was London Marathon coming back up? I was watching that Sarah Hall clip again from this past year and it's even more impressive like if you haven't watched it in a while go back and watch that clip of sarah just fucking dropping the hammer 
And yeah, he there we go. Yeah, we slapped the E on that. I think I said shit earlier. <laughs> she she did. Yeah, it um, was already over. She just drops that hammer. Such a, that is one of the most inspiring final kicks I've ever seen in any race. I mean, there's there's a couple. Yeah, I could watch that again. She also has like an insane pain face when she runs. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It makes it look what would like you do if working. that's just her regular face? Like you go out to dinner with her and that's the face that she has. She's, well, she might just be in pain from talking to you. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Meanwhile, Ryan Hall is doing push-ups next to the dinner table. Trying Lifting to get the – anything can be a weight. Yeah, trying to get in a couple extra reps. <laughs> Bench pressing the hostess stand in the as you're waiting for your table yeah. to be set. Eating her a bag of uh, creatine. Multi-dextrin. Yeah, multi <laughs> Breaking into the the chef's the storage. Okay, we've gone too far. <laughs> no, I actually think I'm not going to stop. That would be an amazing like. You want to see Kardashians? I'd like to see like the keeping up family. with the halls. Yeah, and and have that. You could call it the hallway. I like that. Like <laughs> yeah, that. Come on, <laughs> off the top of my head, that's not bad. So um, yeah, lifetime. If you're listening, we got a show for you that we can pitch. Is that the one? There, or what's the other one? HGTV. Yeah. See, yeah. They, if HGTV they had, is about houses. If they had a... It's life, called it's the lifetime. hallway. Yeah, but you could do... If they had livestock, you could be hauling goats. <laughs> oh, yeah. I like this. We go. Lots of possibilities. <laughs> All right. You're welcome, Sarah and Ryan. Feel yeah. free to send us royalty checks whenever you start rolling deep. Anyways. All right. Let's go. We're done. We're done with this segment. We're excited to talk to Gene McCarthy, right? Coming up. Yeah, it was great. He actually came into the studio and we got to meet him, which was awesome. I mean, he was, he's, I think he's kind of iconic in the running space. Yeah. And you'll hear all about that, his background and history with running. He's pretty much been everywhere. We've got like that Johnny Cash song. Yeah. Like, you know, when Johnny Cash lists all the towns that he's been in. Yeah. Basically, that's, I've been comp- everywhere, that's like comp- shoe companies with Gene McCarthy. Yeah. So let's talk to Gene McCarthy. All right. So today we're joined by Gene McCarthy. Pretty excited for this one. Uh, Gene is the founder and principal of Top League Advisory, which focuses on brand vision and strategy. And of course, that kind of comes along with his experience in the past as a President of Merrill, Senior VP of Footwear for Under Armour. Uh, prior to Under Armour, Gene was also Senior Executive at Timberland Company. You're also Senior VP of uh, for Reeboks Global Footwear. And am I forgetting anything yeah, else? President, sure president anything. Oh, yeah, President of ASICs. Oh, President of ASICs. Oh, my gosh. I'm so like, sorry. <laughs> basically, we're talking to running royalty today who, if he doesn't know somebody in running, I'm surprised that they are actually, they, they're not a runner if Gene doesn't know him. Because you pretty much worked with pretty much every athlete. Like, what would you say in a time frame? Like, we're going back all the way to Matt Centrowitz. Seeing, well, no, he's not really a senior. He's being called a senior. But Matt <laughs> Centrowitz, who is Matthew Centrowitz's dad, like, you used to run with him. Like, mm-hmm. you've been around a while. You Did you say you did do the sub-four-minute mile with, with Matt? Well, yeah, there's a, you left out one company oh, I worked sorry. for. I, I spent 21 years at Nike. Oh, wait, I, know, oh, I, had, Nike. I, I had it on I had it on here. It's, just it's okay that you forgot <laughs> that because it was uh, many moons ago. But uh, let me tell you a story, fellas. And first of all, thank you for having me. This is uh, quite a pleasure and an honor. Um, when I was 13 years old, uh, growing up in the Bronx, the oldest of five kids in, uh, in an Irish immigrant family, you know, two-bedroom apartment, five kids, two parents. You put the picture together yourself. That's cramped. 
And then uh, I saw a cover of Sports Illustrated and I was stunned by the imagery. Uh, it was two guys. One was Marty LaCorey and the other was Jim Ryan and they were running. And um, I read the article and the title of the article was LaCorey Grins and Wins. So um, I read this article. I'm 13 years old. Um, I was about five feet five and 110 pounds, and now I'm five feet seven, 135 pounds. So you get the picture. I'm not going to be the point guard, but running just uh, intrigued me. So when I read the article, uh, this whole thing about the four minute mile became something that I was just, I became obsessed with. And I announced to my family at dinner that night, I made up my mind, I'm going to break the four minute mile. And um, they didn't know what I was talking about. There were eyes rolling. You know, there was, oh, that's nice, son. Um, but anyway, I'll fast forward uh, eight years later. Um, I, I was a schoolboy in, in New York in the Bronx, and that's where I met Matt. I'll get to that in a minute. And then I went to Fordham University on a scholarship, and there's no way anybody in the McCarthy family could go to college without a scholarship. Graduate from Fordham, was an All-American, and I ran 403. So um, I did something that most young people don't do today. I actually wrote a letter. That's a pen and a paper and a stamp and an envelope. And, and um, let me guess, cursive handwriting. Too? It was it was script as we called oh, it back script, in the right. Bronx, but cursive, yes. And uh, I wrote the letter to Marty LaCorey, who uh, wrote me back and said, "Well, I live in Florida. I'm running a chain of stores called Athletic Attic, and uh, let me see if I can help you with your dream to break the four minute mile." So I moved to Florida two months after graduation from Fordham, and. Um, in 1980, in May, May 9th, 1980, uh, I took Marty's place at a, a track meet down in Kingston, Jamaica, the Norman Manley Games. And um, somehow, it was 1,500 meters, so I didn't technically break four minutes, but I ran the equivalent. I ran 342, and what's astonishing is I got third behind uh, Philbert Bailly and Steve Ovette. <laughs> I have no idea how that happened, <laughs> but that be, be, you know began a career, a forty-year career in the athletic industry. I saw the world. I got a free education, and I met all these cool guys. Wasn't there a book about the Florida guys? What was the running book that I read? And it was all about the Florida guys. Once a runner, written by a guy yeah. named John Parker, who was part of our contemporary group when I was down there. And I will tell you this: when you're you have a dream to be a runner or break a four-minute mile. Um, you can talk about workouts all you want and diet, even though back then pizza and beer seemed to be the only <laughs> diet we were aware of. Carbs. Carbs, yeah. yeah. Right. You Carb loading. Cigarettes for some people. So, yeah. yeah, that's true. <laughs> My good friend, Eamon Coughlin. Um, and uh, what I learned down in Florida was from the neck up. It was all attitude. It was all just posturing. It was all conditioning your mind. And I probably used those skills more in my professional career in the industry you know, than I even did as an athlete. But uh, it was it was a fascinating time. And uh, I think the, the moral of the story is I saw a, a magazine, I followed a dream, I worked hard to make that dream come true. And I do believe that dreams can come true. And uh, there were a lot of people like Marty LaCorey, who helped me. That's insane. Like just the mindset, though, when we're talking to if there's young people listening to this podcast, that want to get in the industry and want to want to mm -hmm. take that thing, just that you set out, and I don't think people do it. We we see it every once in a while. Somebody will write in to believe in the run who wants to be a part of what we're doing or something like that. But the majority of people don't understand. You just got to start with the ask. It's just per and being persistent. I will. 
I'm giving away a secret here for believing the run, but one of my, <laughs> the ways that I know someone's going to be a good fit for the team is if they don't stop harassing me. Like if they, if they email me and then keep emailing me, I know they're going to be a, a yeah, great yeah, fit. Oh no, <laughs> like, just, you're just going to, there's, uh, I'm now just getting tons up. of emails, but yeah. there are, that's happened before where I just like, I know that this person wants it and they reached out and they went the extra mile, no pun intended. And it makes a difference. So what was the mental thing that you learned? Like what is the above the above the neck? He, I don't know if you could see it in the podcast. Probably not because it's not video. But <laughs> you put your hand right right underneath your neck mm-hmm. and gestured up, saying that that's where everything came from. So what what is it? I think um, well, the first thing I learned about was visualization, and I don't think you need to go to a sports psychologist to figure that out. Although I did at times, you know, seek that counsel and visualization would be if you're going to go run 10 miles every afternoon in the florida humidity and heat um you better have something to do rather than you know nobody ever listened to anything on their headset that to me if, if you want to be a real runner no headsets you can do that when you're warming up before a race but you can't do that when you're working out i'm with you and and you would virtu- visualize i want to break four minutes and then one day you're on a 10 mile run and you visualize it's going to be hot and steamy or another day it's going to be rainy or another day it's going to be cold or another day it's going to be a slow pace and then I'm, you, so you put yourself almost emotionally through that every day. So you're training your mind as much as you're training your body. And most of it was a distraction from the runs, which could be quite boring. Even if you're running, you know, five and a half minutes a mile, they were boring. They just, you just plotted along. The other thing I learned was one thing about um, Marty LaCorey. Marty LaCorey had, he had attitude, you know, and um, even when he was in high school, he was the third person to break the four minute mile in high school. You know, he had an illustrious career at Villanova, but he had an attitude that was like, yeah, I'm Marty. And the other seven of you on this line, on this race, you may be better than me, you may be faster than me, but I'm Marty. And uh, I picked that up from him and it's not arrogance. Yeah. It's not, it's more like a confidence that is so deeply rooted that even if you don't believe it, you have to believe it because it's so deeply rooted. So uh, it, it, it's it's interesting. Do you think that that was that's different from runners nowadays per se? The culture back then, as opposed to now, um, you know, you're talking about not listening to music on the run, more in the mental space. I know there's like a lot more distractions Data, today. Yeah. Like you have watches. Yeah, and today just time and all everything is like you're connected. And do you think do you think that? I don't know. Is there a difference between back then and now? And what, what do well, you think? Well, the pizza and beer for sure. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> if I only had known. But um, I will say this: I think, yeah. All that. Are you going to be a runner and win with your heart and your head, or are you going to be a science project? Mm. And is it all going to be based on? Well, I ate this the other day. I didn't have candy, or you know, I I've been using this oxygen tank. And all that is great. But doesn't it take away the whole fierceness that came through in some of the athletes? I do think that's that's a little bit of the difference. There's a toughness that seems to be, I don't know if we're just, uh, people have gotten softer or, uh, you know, not not even in a negative way. But there's not that like swagger that you see. And and we love it because when you watch the Olympic trials or something like that and you see someone Mm -hmm. talking smack to someone else, you're like, oh, they really care. And this is fun. Like it brings the fun into it. And it's like, hey, let's let's talk some crap and back it up. Yeah, I, th- I still think that that's really important. I just saw 
before walking in here that uh, Katie Ledecky got a silver yeah. medal and the, and the whole world is horrified. And, uh, you know, I, my first thought as, you know, you know, a modestly successful athlete, I wasn't nearly as good as many people, but I, my first one was about, was she fierce enough that day? Mm-hmm. You know, what, what are the distractions, you know, and I, and I just think the best athletes somehow can turn it on in any sport, but particularly in running. You know, we look, you asked about my friend, uh, Matthew Centrowitz, or Matt Centrowitz, I won't call him senior. <laughs> I, I met him when I was 13. And um, we he, he was living in the Bronx. He was a year ahead of me. He went to Power Memorial High School, famous for a guy named Lou Al Sindor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's no longer open. It's an Irish Christian brother school, much like my high school, All Hollows, which is two blocks from Yankee Stadium. You know, not everybody. And, and let's just say right now, we're talking about toughness. The Bronx back then wasn't what the Bronx <laughs> is even now in the Bronx in the eighties. I mean, it was, uh, you know, this is not a place where you just hung out. No, nah, I mean, first of all, it's all we knew. None of us knew Matt and I talk about this. We never knew we were poor. <laughs> we never knew it was tough. We never thought it was easy in other places until we eventually got on an airplane, but the Bronx was tough. And even just going to practice every day, you know, all hollows is by Yankee stadium. I had to take, um, uh, a bus and a train to get to Van Cortland Park to tra- to uh, practice for cross country. We used to go to the Armory, 168th Street Armory, and yeah. uh, and that's where we worked out. Back then, it wasn't this this <laughs> testimony to beautiful tracks. It yeah. was a place where it was filled with um, uh, military vehicles that weren't used. It smelled heavily of, f- of fuel diesel. and gas, <laughs> and yeah, diesel. It was also used as a homeless shelter, and the floor was flat and it was wood. And if you go to the armory today, there's even a section that they didn't redo to Just remind to you. you know. So even though some kid ran the armory this past year, and Matt and I ran the armory way back then, it's not the same armory. And you're right, the Bronx is not the same Bronx, and the runners are not the same runners. So. What we didn't have in technology back then, you got through with fierceness. I mean, there's no way a guy 5'7 and 125 pounds, you know, should run, you know, a, a 148 in 1980 or a 342. Yeah. But that, I did. That's the thing, like, before we transition into some of the career stuff, that's the thing that blows my mind about running. Like, even, yeah, world records are being broken now. Technology, you could say shoes, diet, all that stuff. I think athletes in general are are healthier and are more tuned going into these things but we're not talking about huge numbers here it's not like we've had this astronomical leap from people that were breaking the four minute miles to now where it's like that it's it's whatever you guys were doing it hasn't evolved so much that it's unrelatable to what's going on today as a matter of fact i'd say there was probably more people back then that we're achieving some of these things than there are today. Like the average uh, pace of the marathon has gone skyrocketed compared. Used to be if you ran a marathon, you were running a sub three marathon. Mm. Now there's people like me out there <laughs> dragging the times down. But, you know, uh, uh, am I right? Yeah, I mean, think of uh, John Walker. You know, look at the image. Long hair, that black singlet, the little shorts. And he broke 350. And to this day, and that's how many years ago, this is, yeah. wow, I mean, 40 years ago. Yeah. And to this day, breaking 350 is still a, a, an accomplishment and a feat, if you will, right? Yeah. American Moonshot. record is only 346, right? But he did that 40 years ago, and he didn't have the benefit of everything today. Look, I'm not talking smack about all the good things that athletes have today, but if you really want to win, 
it still comes with how you think about it and your fierceness. And so it comes to the stuff above you, the neck. Do yeah. you think as well that it comes from how you were raised or how you grew up? Because, I mean, I look at, well, Americans, I mean, like you said, we haven't progressed that much since that time. And you're talking about, you know, how you grew up and you think about the East Africans. A lot of them grew up where, you know, they're walking to school four miles a day. I mean, one of the things I bring up another in other podcasts was, Killian Journey, his parents were taking him tracking through the Alps when he was four years old, you know? And I wonder, do you have to have that? Or is that something that's just an added bonus? You, you know, I'm probably going to say all the wrong things here, but um, <laughs> no, say the right somebody thing. would say to me, uh, so you were a runner? No, I said I was a track and field competitor. Yeah. And when I grew up, there weren't, you know, all these five K's and 10 K's named after barnyard animals and, you know, <laughs> cures for boredom and everything else that they have out there. So um, I, I do wonder. Sometimes. Wait, so you haven't done a color run? <laughs> <laughs> no. And that's it. like I've never run a marathon, but I have run 26 miles on a Sunday workout in yeah. around, you know, a little less than two hours and 30 minute pace. Right. So. But I never had run a marathon, and I think there was a difference between track and field and running. I'm not knocking running, but mm. there's something a little bit m that brings out your fierceness more when you're on a line with mm. six or ten other people rather than 6,000 or 10,000 other people. I would agree with you. It's a different sport. And, you know, we often bring it up on the podcast, just that it's a different, there's different ways people come into running. And I certainly came into it later in life. You know, I played sports in high school and stuff like that, but I didn't, track wasn't one of them. And... I can tell the difference between the runners that came out of track and then go into their mature years in, and into running versus the people who pick it up later. I actually think, unfortunately for the track people, there's more joy in it for people who come into it later because they they never experienced, you know, trying to go after the sub four, four minute mile. They never experienced like it's OK to run an 830 pace when you haven't when you know that that's a great pace for you versus when you know that when you were in high school, you could drop five minute miles all day long. So it, it is interesting to me just to feel the difference. And I do, I do think there is a difference between the two types of athletes and how they approach running. I, I envy the joy because I always wanted that. And, uh, um, I said years ago that I had a four minute mile brain, but an eight minute mile body. And I couldn't reconcile those two things. Now it's turned into a 14 minute mile <laughs> body as I turn 65. And it's not because I don't stay fit and healthy. It's because, you know, your body just breaks down anyway when you get older. But never mind. I think when you're running 100 to 120 miles a week, you know, something happens to you later in life that. I get up in the morning and things are creaking and cracking more so than maybe other people. Matt and I were talking, Matt Centrowitz and I were talking recently about, you know, our little um, physical woes. And uh, we were talking about how we thought all those miles would add up like a, a squirrel saving chestnuts. And when we got older, we would be like Jack LaLanne doing, you know, uh, jumping jacks until we were 90. But uh, it doesn't always work the way. But I do envy the joy of running. And that's one of the reasons why when I was in my career, while I never found that joy of running, I did find it, you know, um, through just through the work I did, because mm -hmm. I really love the people that had the going to New York City Marathon and watching people just enjoy them. Well, eventually you had to slow down a little bit, like even if we work when you're at these companies, not everybody's running breakneck speeds at lunch when they're doing their lunch run. You had to slow down a little bit and enjoy conversation, camaraderie and all that stuff, right? Yeah, it's a, it, you have to, first of all, because you work. 
which displaces something out of your life, usually working out. So you uh, technically get slower. But I remember uh, my years at Nike, particularly in the mid 80s, when I had moved from Florida to Oregon and to work in retail marketing at Nike. And uh, I would go on the on the afternoon runs, but I was trying to find the joy. Right. I wasn't trying to find the get my heart rate up. And then they would always throw something at you like, oh, Steve Cram's in town and he's looking for somebody to run with at lunch. <laughs> and that's where the four minute mile brain and the eight minute mile body had a real argument. Um, but uh, <laughs> you come but, back from lunch all broken. <laughs> but I just really enjoyed, I, you know, the uh, hood to coast. I yeah. did hood to coast. It was that stuff. I was trying to find joy. Mm-hmm. And you got to remember when you you know, most of us in the Bronx, you know, we looked at running as a means to an end uh, to get a scholarship to travel. Um, See, that's the other thing that you were talking about. Sorry to interrupt you. Not at all. When Robbie was just talking about the toughness, I think it's the same thing with other sports where sometimes that the sport is the way out of a situation mm. where it's if you're in a really comfortable situation, yeah. say that your parents are paying for sure. private school and it's really nice to be there and you know you're going to college. Maybe when you line up, your life isn't on the line to get that sub four minute mile. And you're like, well, you know, 359 would be fine, you know, just to get the number. Whereas some of these kids that are from other lifestyles, that is their way into other opportunities. Yeah. I mean, I was watching, I enjoy watching golf and I was watching yesterday and there's a, a young guy, um, I, I can't remember his name, so I won't mention it anyway. And he was in the chase after the third round and his parents flew there for Sunday and his father founded Sun Microsystems. His father did, right? So obviously this is a kid that had a privileged life. Sure. Well, he was nowhere to be found in the fourth round. Yeah. So I do think fierceness and toughness, everybody has it. I don't care if you go to a private school or you have to go to public school. I don't care if it's the Bronx or you know Boulder, Colorado. You have it, but you have to call that in if you really want to be a winner. All right, second check-in. We talked about hydration and how important it is. And it do, it starts before you run. It doesn't start right now while you're running. It starts the night before, the day before, the week before. Make sure that you're getting enough water and enough electrolytes during the week to make sure that you're having a good run. And again, if you need another reminder, go ahead, take another swig. Let's get into some of your career here because I think it's fascinating. Also, I think, again, some of the people listening to the podcast are interested in careers in running and want to know about how to get into it, what the paths are, what the opportunities are. You certainly have made a life out of opportunities in running footwear and in, uh, I mean, Merrill also trail running, but it's not, not as much road, but overall, you got into it because your passion for running and it exploded it from there. Can you kind of walk walk us through some of that process? Yeah, I, I yeah, I'm privileged and I and I, I'm aware of that that my vocation is also my avocation. And who gets to say they do that? I'm gonna look at you guys. You guys, your vocation and avocation are one and the same. So uh, I think that should be everybody's quest and goal. Listen, I was I was sp- uh, sponsored by Nike as a collegian, and then after. My college years when I went to Florida, I was also sponsored by Nike. Uh, a guy named Tiny Kane, Phil Phil Kane, Tiny Kane, uh, who's from Rhode Island, introduced me to a guy named Jeff Hollister in 1975 at Van Cortland Park, and that was my first introduction to Nike and getting free gear. When I ended my career, I got a phone call from somebody at Nike that says, "Hey, do you know anybody that lives in Florida 
<laughs> that has a marketing degree because we're looking to put together these tech reps. They call them Eakins, which was Nike yeah. spelled backwards. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you've heard of it. Yep. And the reason it's spelled backwards is not to be tricky. It's because Nike felt that when they got to about $300 million in, in revenue, they thought they were losing touch. So they wanted to go backwards to the days when they were a grassroots oh, company. Cool. Oh my goodness, look now. And uh, so I-, I <laughs> Well, they, I, they just relaunched Blue Raven again. So, why not? My, yeah. you, there's so many kids who wouldn't even know what that is. But, um, and that, so I said, what about me? I have a marketing degree. I live in Florida. Oh yeah, it was such an obvious thing. <laughs> I actually flew to Portland for the interview. And keep in mind, no cell phones, all that stuff. You get a paper plane ticket. And um, I went there and stayed at this Red Lion Inn and then went to the offices, which were on Murray Boulevard, not the big Mecca that yeah, it is today. Yeah, it's insane now. It's like a college campus. It's like a city yeah. and uh, the Emerald City. And uh, uh, I went over to the offices. A guy named Brad Johnson brought me there. I was going to meet uh, this woman, Pam McGee, and um, she didn't have time to see me. So he says, just go back to the hotel. We'll meet you for dinner. Mm. And I went back to the hotel and... Uh, they didn't show up for dinner. Oh, wow. Brad did. So I flew back the next day. That's what my plane ticket said. And then I got hired. So the, inter <laughs> the interviewing process is a little bit more rigorous today. And it's, uh, it's, it, it, it's no quite, background check. <laughs> yeah, none of that. But um, so anyway, it began this great career. And, um, you know, I, I think I learned the best part of the industry is I learned listening, looking and listening on the outside in rather than all the, there are no answers in any corporate headquarters. There's no answers on any campus. That's all the questions are. The answers are out in the street with the runners, with the people who love sports, right? So that's where I learned that value and, and that helped me through my career. But I was there for 21 years. The last three and a half, I was asked to become the um, global head of sales uh, and retail marketing for the Jordan brand. And um, it, that's it. That was that. That's a small brand. It doesn't have much to do with running. I don't know if people have heard of it. <laughs> yeah, but it's this guy named Michael Jordan. Yeah, yeah it's more in the basketball side of things. <laughs> yeah, basketball. That that other sport that wishes it could be track and field or running, right? <laughs> yeah, right. But anyway, um, you know, it was a great experience there to have something that was out of my boundaries, right? I wasn't a basketball player. I love basketball. Like who wouldn't in the, in, you know, oh, yeah. in the nineties or in the two thousands when I was there and, uh, but it was great. But then what happened was, uh, and I'll get to the part about kids wanting to get in the industry. I got to a point where I'm like, is it me or is it Memorex? Is it real? Is it Memorex? And is it, am I, you become after a while in any company, you become beige against a tan wall. Mm. And I wanted to know if I had the goods or if it was just because I worked for this brand, which now was about 10 or $12 billion. So I got offered a job at uh, Reebok and um, Nike was very, very excited for me. They, uh, we spent two days in federal court mm. because I violated my non-compete. And uh, that was quite an experience. And uh, federal court is interesting because the judges are appointed by uh, sitting U.S. presidents. This judge was appointed by Ronald Reagan and, and he got very angry in the courtroom at one time and said, this is a court of law. It's not a basketball court. It's not a tennis court. It's a court of law. Oh, that's a good line. And he said, this isn't about contract law. This is about two companies that hate each other. I'll have none of it. Everybody out of my um, courtroom until uh, level heads prevail. Whoa. And I that's sat awful. there and uh, listen, I've been in situations before, but I couldn't even lift the water glass to my lips. And <laughs> Judge Marsh said to me, son, whether you like it or not, you're going to go to the beach for a year. You're going to sit home. And it was devastating to be this hardworking kid from the Bronx and yeah. come from a blue collar family that had to sit home for a year with pay. 
But I don't want to make the industry sound rosy, but that was a big transition going to the other brand. The one thing about this industry, these brands, we all know each other. It's a very incestuous industry. Sometimes we go to trade shows. Oh, you, what business card do you have this year versus last year? <laughs> right. Everybody's showing up at different places. Yeah. But the industry, it, it, it's very contentious. People are really, really, you know, it's competition. It's sports, right? Yeah. So, Well, that's the thing. You're taking a bunch of people that have a passion for sports. So they're already competitive. Probably a lot of type A personalities, a lot of chips on the shoulder. You're putting them all, you, you all want the same job. You all want to be the best. And, you know, it's funny because we, it's kind of nice being in our spot where we're kind of like a neutral player. And uh, even though we don't always say the most positive thing about a particular issue, I think for the most part, we're fans of everything that everybody's doing. But it is interesting to watch it from the outside looking in. So we, I kind of get what you're what you're alluding to there. Yeah, it's but it, it can be gentlemanly. And it, I know it's the sports industry, but sometimes it doesn't mimic sports. So track and field, if you run a race, what's the first thing you do when you cross the finish line? You shake the hand of the person you beat or the person who beat you, right? Even in hockey, yeah, they yeah. shake hands. Yeah. Tennis, they <laughs> shake hands. And in other sports like football. And so depending on the sport, that is your you know, your core competency at some of these brands that also brings in that sports culture. Mm -hmm. So even though there was, it was competitive with running brands, it was may the fastest man win, right? With other brands, it's like, how can I trip you in the hallway, you know, to get your job or, you know what Mm. I mean? It gets a, it gets a little, I guess there's not as clear a finish line. No, there isn't. And you know, the, the other thing too, about um, track and field, while it's fiercely competitive, um, there, there's basically a camaraderie there. And sometimes it's, you could, you could interact and socialize with all these people that are from a competitor, but there's always that little thing that just separates you. You know what I mean? So there's a, a part where it was gentlemanly, but there's another part where it was competitive, hence the court case. So I had to sit home. And then when I got back, uh, after a year of sitting home, um, which I hated well, every last second. I was going to say, what was that like for you just to take a year off after being so ingrained and working hard for those last 22 decades? You know? uh, it, it's For me, it was uh, physically impossible to the point where every day um, I would take my son Patrick to grade school. He was in the eighth grade. We lived in Portland until mm-hmm. we moved to Boston. And then I would go to like a Starbucks and set up my own office. So I had to make work every day, like just do something. Do something yeah. you, I, I, and I have to separate my home from my workspace. That's why I don't know how yeah. people ever made it through the pandemic. But <laughs> I, went, I went back to Reebok and then I was the head of the product creation engine, which was a whole new world for me. And um, what nobody knew at the time was that uh, Paul Fireman, the CEO of Reebok, had a handshake agreement with Herbert Heiner, the CEO of Adidas, at the Athens Olympics in 2004, that they were going to, one quiet. was going to buy the other. Ah, and yes. so everything we did for that year without knowing why was counterculture to what you should do on a business because we were trying to make the company look juicy right, for right. sale. Right. Uh, I mean, it's interesting because Reebok's back up on the, on mm-hmm. the, uh, what do you call it? Uh, yeah. The auction block? Yeah. yeah. Uh, on the block, that's the word. It's on the block, for. and it's uh, yeah. it's the value of it is uh, more than ha- less than half of what it was when it was sold. I forget who just backed out. Uh, they had they authentic had, brands group. That was it. Yeah. yeah. Yikes. Yeah, I know those guys. Uh, good guys. When I was at Asics, I worked with a a guy named Steve Aoki, 
who uh, is probably more fit than some of the athletes. He also throws cake in people's faces. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Different guy. It's it's the guy. And uh, his father started Benihana too. So he's a terrific Uh. guy. But um, he worked with Authentic Brands Group with um, one one of his sportswear lines. And uh, I met those guys. But Reebok needs somebody that can take the heritage of the brand, dust it off, spin it around a little bit but there, there, there's there's legs to that business out there just well, i think it, it needs the right ownership it's interesting because they have a good product right now like there there's runners when they get reebok like it they they've been doing pretty much what's on trend mm-hmm. lighter faster shoes but they there's not a marketing engine behind it so they end up going up online and being for sale for 40 half bucks. off yeah <laughs> where so there's not a value behind the brand so we kind of weren't surprised when we saw this happening just because there was no like most of them brands that are active we can tell what's going on because they're they're talking to us and seating us shoes and getting us they want to know what our thoughts are on different product when a company goes quiet it's not a good sign and you know, there's been a few since we started mm-hmm. Believe in the Run. has been around now for almost 12 years. There's been a few brands that we've seen kind of go quiet and it's never, never been good. Yeah, I think, you know, as you said, they're on the block. And uh, look, if you there's a difference between a company and a brand. All right. Yeah. A company, you know, makes widgets. They ship them to distribution centers. Then they start the process over again. A brand has a 24-7 always on uh, conversation with its with its consumers even if you don't buy something from the brand and i think that that's the merit to being a brand versus a company i think reebok has legs as a brand it is globally known it has archives it has heritage mysteriously it should have it should be the biggest most powerful women's brand if you go back to the 80s my goodness jane fonda stopped making movies and started making you know workout videos and and reebok was the the shoe of choice and quite frankly, Nike, and I was there at the time, and I was bitter about it, but Nike couldn't crack that code. Yeah. Reebok owned that. But I think Reebok always wanted to be like Nike, as opposed to when I was at Under Armour. Under Armour was obsessed with beating Nike. Mm. Yeah. You know, So uh, you know, sometimes you just got to be who you are. You know? and Everyone that, else is taken. Be yourself. Right? That is, the, the, I always feel like the brand's the emotional connection that you have to whatever it is. So like Reebok, I think about, the shoes or the products over time that I was emotional about, like the Iversons and stuff like that. The, there is a place that you have, but in the consumer's mind, they determine sort of what that emotional bond is. And I think that sometimes companies try to make an emotional contact. They're like, this is where we want to be. How do we get there? mm -hmm. And they don't realize you're already here. Dig in deep and, and really, serve that crowd that loves you and i think that's where you know when we see a brand that's like going sideways it's when they're trying to do the growth model and they're they're forgetting maybe who they are to the consumer and when when you turn off a consumer and you lose it then there's confusion on your brand and then you end up at kohl's and your commodity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you mentioned something that is really important to me. Um, it probably goes back to my Eakin days in Florida. Uh, I coined a term when I was at the Jordan brand, and it's probably more relevant today than it was even then, which is we don't own this brand. Kids do. We just manage it for them. Yeah. And if you can truly run your brand through the eyes of the consumer, my father who was in the Navy, was quite proud of it, used to always say, 
uh, the first thing the captain should do is look at the ship through the eyes of the crew. Mm. And, and I think that is what also differentiates companies and brands. And look, if you're chasing revenue, try taking revenue to Bank of America. The, the teller will go, honey, go back home and get the bag that says profit on it. Yeah. Because we don't do revenue here. And I think there's been this obsession with revenue, that this, this infamous billion dollars, elusive billion dollars, which turned out to be like a Bermuda Triangle for the industry, for all these brands that were trying to get there, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think it's about, do you have the big idea? Uh, are you looking at things through the consumer's eyes? Do you let consumers make those decisions for you? or at least give them the appearance that you are. I remember at Under Armour, um, Kevin Plank, who, is very, who I'm very fond of, said to me, comes into the office, we need to get into fashion. We need to make cool fashion shoes. And I'm like, well, give me an example. And he said, Converse, Chuck Taylors, every little girl has a pair, pink ones, purple ones, plaid ones. And I said, Kevin, that's not fashion. I said, the Boston Celtics won 11 world championships in those shoes. That's a performance shoe. No, no, no. They're fashion. They're fashion. The little girl decided they were fashion. Actually, the Ramones decided they yeah. were fashion. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, so I think that's a, a, a key point. And I've always been a consumer advocate for that reason. They, they give you more insight without knowing it sometimes than your team of 12 you know, highly paid vice presidents. And um, I think that also segregates the companies that are going to make it in the world. Are they just making stuff or are they going to have a conversation with consumers? So I guess one of the things I'm interested in about that is uh, you want consumers to drive, you know, the, the direction and you want to please the consumers. But how do you see the trends? How do you plan for trends that are coming in, say, a year, two years, three years? Well, yeah, especially for running, it's right. two years out. It's, when it, you're looking at the consumer, how do you do that? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it takes 18 months to make an athletic shoe, but right. it takes nine months to make a baby. You know, go figure. <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting. It's, a shame. <laughs> it's not the other way. <laughs> well, it takes 10 months to an assemble to assemble a 747 for Boeing. So right. anyway, um, it is a lengthy process. I think the idea of trends is is gone. I think um, I, I used to say to I always was very fond of our designers. You've had guests like Dave Dunbar and Kevin Fallon, two of my all time favorites. Um, and I used to always tell those guys, if you see it once, it's an idea. If you see it twice, it's a trend. If you see it three times, it's over. It's over. So I don't think you can create trends or chase. Definitely can't chase trends. Mm -hmm. And by the way, trends used to last maybe six months or a year. Mm -hmm. Now they last six minutes to an hour. Yep. So I, I don't know how that is, but um, in the olden days, all you had to do was make a better mousetrap, right? My sh my Toyota Camry has a better cup holder than the Honda Accord. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll put a Our, waffle outsole on this uh, old slick bottom. Doesn't yeah. work that way anymore. There's yeah. four to me. There were four things that you need to to build a brand today. If you're a startup, if or even to rebuild your brand, if you're a Reebok, number one is what's in a name. Names matter. Nike was going to be called Dimension Six until about forty-eight hours before, you know, uh, <laughs> thank God, Jeff Johnson had his dream yeah. about you know Greek mythology and uh, but victory, Dimension, and then names are, can, you know look well, at Uber, look at Google, all these names are really important. Look at look at uh, Derek Jeter, Joe Montana; those names were made for sports. But then again, we do have Ben Roethlisberger, and, <laughs> that is and you can become Big Ben if you want to. Yeah, so. yeah they had to change it. That's is not. Ben Roethlisberger. Well, the three most, ben. three of the most iconic fashion brands in America are named after uh, uncommon names of men you'd probably never name your children after. Excuse me. One's Tommy Hilfiger, one's Ralph Lauren, and one's Calvin Klein. But yeah. somehow you can transcend a name. The second thing you need is 
And this is the most important thing for young people today. Nobody's going to care about your brand until they know what your brand cares about. The third one, going back to your product comment, is really important. Don't just build a shoe. Solve a problem. What problem are you solving it for? And what is your point of differentiation? And the last one, just like coming here and your cool offices and your cool company and brand that you've built, you have a culture. And it feels like at the minute you walk in the door, what is your culture? It's important. I speak a lot at, at different colleges. And recently I spoke at the Business School of uh, Cornell University. And uh, a student asked me if, they, if, if Adidas would ever beat Nike or pass Nike. And I said, the only thing that's going to beat Nike or any brand Under Armour, Adidas, is culture. You got to have the right culture and you have to live up to the values of the culture as a leadership team so that the people who really do the work in your business can follow along. So it's different these days, but. But you brought up a good point because, you know, we pretty much will put shoes in a like category. So you have your daily trainers, your tempo shoes, your race day shoes. Then you got to have a trail shoe. You're going to have a stability shoe. So if you're creating a line of shoes for a company, you have these little buckets you want to fill. After that, you're just kind of putting widgets on shoes. And we talk about stuff like visible technology or, or stuff like that, that while maybe the consumer, but don't add to the actual performance of the shoe. So when you're working at a company that needs to make sure that you have obviously those buckets filled for a footwear, and then they start going sideways and start putting all the little things that maybe aren't necessary to give you a good run. Like where's, how does that happen? Is that just a revenue chase or is it like a conscious decision or, or is it fun to like play? Like what's going on there? Yeah, there's the angel and the devil in, in every company and you have to live by both and you got to balance both. The angel is we want to do exactly what is right for the consumer. But on the other hand, we want to make as much goddamn money as we can. So you have to balance those two things out. And um, I think sometimes the consumer will say, leave it alone exactly the way it is. And then the guy, the itchy designer and, and developer are going, you know, I still want to make it a little better than it has been. So there's that angst and that friction that goes on. And that comes from the creative process. Then there's the revenue side, which is, hey, that shoe's a home run for us. Why don't you add a little something to it and see if we can make it a home run and another tour <laughs> around the bases after that. And so I think it, it can come down to, you know, revenue is really on the evil side. On the other hand, revenue is how we pay for things and how you pay for, I remember it, uh, I was shocked when I went to Reebok, they had a fantastic innovation team and innovation center and lab. And they were working on stuff that was super cool. Of course, Nike has its kitchen and that is super cool. And Tinker Hatfield's work and all the things you don't know about are great. But I still think when you get, when the rubber hits the road, no pun intended, I think what happens is you got to give the consumer what you th- know the consumer needs, but that and sometimes you have to surprise, not shock the consumer, right? Yeah. So, and along those lines, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was, do you think because of that, there is an opening for other smaller brands to come in? Like we kind of seen recently where we have a Treyu or even Speedland, both on polar opposite ends of the spectrum, um, where they're just presenting a shoe, a Treyu in a more simple form, where you have Speedland with all the premium qualities that you can't find from uh, you know a large scale manufacturer who's trying to make uh, more of a profit. Do you think that opens up the doors 
to for those brands like is there an opening right now yeah i'm a big fan of these young smart brands coming out and as i mentioned earlier trying to solve a problem or fill a void in a market that doesn't exist i think it's possible i think where it gets dangerous if you look at two established brands now on and mm-hmm. hoka one one yeah i mean first of all hoka one one they started off with having you know uh, minimalist you know we're gonna Barefoot running, which I was always a big fan of, because that means we wouldn't have to do anything just to people to <laughs> run barefoot and charge them for it. But anyway, they went from barefoot running to having a pendulum switch to these big, thick uh, outsoles. But they're popular, and consumers have found you know some happy medium with that brand. On is the same way; mm-hmm. they they have a design um, that is unique to them. On the other hand, you get to a point if you're doing business in this running specialty channel. Um, it's only 10 or 12% of the U.S. market, and it's never been greater than that over the last 10 years. So you have to sell your soul mm. to get more sales. And then do you abandon that channel? And yeah. that, that's a... See, I don't feel as much with Hoka as I do with On that I felt like Mizuno did this to themselves too with the wave plate. You live by a technology that you sell to the customers and say, hey, this is the best. Our cloud tech is amazing. You got to use cloud tech. And then all of a sudden you've got to make cloud tech shoes all the time. And even if you get surpassed, new foams come out, other technology comes along that's better for the consumer. You're still saying, Hey, look at cloud tech. We're going to put a hard plate under your shoe to attach these clouds. That is not going to give you the most comfortable ride. And, but we got to stick with that. So, okay, now I'm stuck as a designer. I want to make a comfortable ride. So now I'm going to put foam uh, t- on top of the plate, mm. but then put the clouds underneath that. And now I've got this monster shoe. It's like, it just keeps building on it. And I've seen Mizuno and I feel like in the American market, which Mizuno actually could have it positioned correctly. They had the plate in the shoes before everybody was putting the plates in the shoe. True. And now they're taking the plates out and trying to reinvent themselves. I find that those shoes kind of pigeonhole themselves where I'm finding shoes like these new ones that are coming, like Robbie mentioned Atreyu or even Speedland, where they're bringing something to the market that isn't going to necessarily pigeonhole them. Like the value proposition of an Atreyu is we're not, we're giving you just what you need for the running shoe and you can play with that. You can get, you know, you don't have to, to worry about it as long as you keep the price point. At a certain place, it's kind of like Gooder sunglasses. If Oakley came out with Gooder sunglasses, people would be like, "What a piece of crap this is!" But Gooder said, "Hey, these are disposable. They're twenty five bucks." And like you said, they let the consumer know who they are right up front. Yeah, this is mm-hmm. who we are. This is what we do. And in your experience, and when you watch companies develop these things, have you seen stuff where you're like, "Let's not get pigeonholed," or do you think people just follow follow it down like a, a trap because it's making money? Well, I'll say this in in a blanket statement. One of those companies is owned by a couple of private equity firms. Another one is owned by a portfolio of brands. So there there's just a different way yeah. of doing business. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, when if it's private equity, it's all about the revenue, the revenue, the revenue. So back to the earlier comment, adding widgets onto you know one design is probably the only way to go. Plus, if you leverage your brand against only one design, you know, what are you going to do? Unless, of course, you develop such a following that people believe in the idea of your brand that they'd accept from you another version of something else that comes completely out of the blue. So look, it, it's it, it, we're, we're capitalists, aren't we? We all want to make a living, pay our rent and our mortgages, feed our families and all that. Um, but 
you know, sometimes that idea of revenue can really get in the way of just good progress. So that's why with, you know, Fallon and Dumbrow and what they're doing, it's it's because they're, they're not letting the noise in right now. And I, and I think they're going to be very, very successful if they're allowed to do that for a long period of time. All right. Final check in. By now, you got to be close to the end of your bottle. Hopefully you have some water with you. And if you are, find a fountain, fill it up, or make sure after this run, you really take in that extra hydration to make up for all the sweat and all the stuff that you lost during this run. Really important. It's going to make a difference in how you perform, how you feel about running, and in general. And if you were running and you don't have a hydration bottle and you don't have a way to get water or electrolytes on the run, maybe it's time to go online and purchase yourself a new hydration bottle or figure out a way to carry some liquids with you or map out where the different fountains are. Hope you enjoyed your run. Hope you stayed hydrated and got through this run in perfect health. Talk to you soon. So uh, one of the things I wanted to come back to talk about that you were talking about earlier was company culture. And I'm always interested in this. Uh, and you've served in a leadership role in, you know, like we said, uh, several different companies. How do you maintain a company culture? And if that does get away, how do you try and bring it back to a line where it's supposed to be? Yeah, a company culture, some people think company culture is, well, every Tuesday night we have free beer and pizza. That's not a company right. culture. That's a company. It's just a good idea. It is. <laughs> I remember when I joined ASICS, um, I had no idea. You believe this? 2015. I had no idea that ASICS was an acronym for a Latin phrase that loosely translated is of sound mind, of sound body. I'm like, that's brilliant. <laughs> but, it, you know, if you don't know that and you don't espouse upon that idea, ASICS can almost sound almost like a pharmaceutical company. It doesn't have sure. a ring to it. So that's the values. And then when you learn about the founder of ASICS, 1949, and Mr. Onitsuka, you know, founded this brand because he didn't want the kids, uh, the youth of Japan after the war and war-torn Japan to get depressed. So he thought they should play and move. It wasn't started as a running company mm -hmm. as such. And and that's the values of the brand. You know what I mean? And um in there is it's just it's it's uh, the character of the brand and i think that has to be um permeate everything you do from how you build shoes to how you hire to how you um you know decide you're going to make business decisions are they going to somehow you know distract from the values of the brand you know N nike started as a track and field company it didn't start as a running brand never mind a basketball brand or all the other sports mm -hmm. look at soccer it took nike a decade to crack the code on soccer because they were a foreigner to that sport because only the value uh, the brands that had the values for soccer were in there but you bring up an interesting point i'm gonna interrupt you for a second because nike has done something that i haven't seen a lot of other brands do when I first heard, I was into skateboarding. When I first heard Nike was trying, like we wore Air Jordans for skateboarding, but it wasn't like, you know, Converse, Vans. Airwalk. You know, yeah, a little bit later, Airwalks. And what was that other one? That, like the big fat shit. Like Etnies. Yeah. They, they owned skateboarding and it was counterculture. Like how do you come in? Nike was able to come in as not a counterculture brand. That's an established brand that you get. Your parents wore Nikes, you had, you know, that whole thing. 
they were able to come into skateboarding. They carved out their space. And now Nike skateboarding is pretty substantial. And Nike has been able to do that to other sports where I've watched other companies try to do stuff like that and fail miserably. I guess my my question is like, has have you noticed that in, in, in the yeah the uh, so Nike skate? Um, there's a guy who's no longer with us. God uh, bless him, uh, Sandy Bodecker, and uh, Mark Parker had asked him to go figure out skate, and I don't want to hear from you or see you, and that is the coolest way to do business. Is it not? <laughs> And Sandy, you know, became part of the culture of Southern California and all that. And then he cultivated it and it took a long time. Yes, they purchased Hurley and just like in soccer, they purchased Umbro, I think at one time. You can't buy your way into these sports. You have to earn the street cred. And if you look at the Jordan 1, which was kind of a skate rat shoe. Yeah. The kid decided that. That wasn't some, you know, idea that came out of the the marketing team of the Jordan brand. Kids decided that. Back to the thing about consumers drive the business. So I think you have to, something most companies don't have anymore is patience. And you got to have the money. Sandy Bodecker could do anything he wanted to get this this business to be cultivated so that Nike had street cred. And But if you think about it, he was a person. It wasn't like, here's our cool shoe, try it. That came over time, but he had those kids tell him what they like and didn't like about shoes. And they were they were like almost constant wear testers of the product. And then the business blossomed. Nike had an ad back in the 80s, which I loved, a print ad. Remember those? It was called word of foot advertising. And I think that's how it works. I still think that's how it works today or it can work. Who has the patience for that, though? Yeah. Well, I mean, I recall like I skated in the mid 90s, the late 90s. And I remember when Nike came out with the first uh, skate shoe and we all were like this is garbage because it we're like what are they, they're just uh, clearly just a huge company trying to get in on this like counterculture thing like it was so transparent to us and uh and we just knew like the quality wasn't there like at, at first because we we're like hey, look this doesn't have this and this and this that we want but obviously you know as they learned over time and then um, implemented those things and Obviously, they had some high-profile athletes that helped with, uh, like, Ryan Sheckler, I think. But that's the thing. Like, I don't understand how other brands haven't picked up on this formula. Obviously, in the culture, for example, like, there's people that have tried to break into running, and the product isn't matching. It isn't, it's not a quality product that's getting adopted. But it seems like you watch other brands. Like, Puma just came back into running, and... They've been able to inject themselves in with one season of shoes back into the conversation, back into the mix, and they're back considered a running company where they they were out and they didn't have any other than uh, Usain Bolt. I mean, they didn't have anybody to, to speak up for their brand. Yeah, I'm not surprised at Puma. I, I do consulting, as you mentioned at the beginning of our show, but... Um... Puma, I've been high on for the last year and a half, mostly because I I know what goes on, you know, with the people there, and I believe in it. But they they had a conflict of interest. Are they a fashion brand, a European fashion brand, or do they have the fastest runner in the world, Usain Bolt? Mm-hmm. And I think they had to make up their minds that you couldn't have both, you know. And um, they've done a really good job. But you mentioned this point about the product doesn't stand up or hold up. Um, it, it it it's hard to crack the code in running. There's a there's a no vacancy sign on the running category 
and uh, take it from me having tried, you know, relentlessly at, at Under Armour to, to crack that code. But um, the, the one thing about Puma, what they were able to do is if they go into what got them to the game in the first place, which is what they did, they were a powerful running brand back in the 70s and 80s. And they, you know, and, you know, so they had the goods to back it up. They didn't have to make it up. And I think a lot of companies try to make it up. I thought it was interesting, and I watched carefully when Skechers decided to go from a casual brand to a technical running brand. And whether the product was good or not, I won't judge. Uh, that's what you guys do. Mm-hmm. I will tell you that the consumer has to give permission to Skechers to be considered a running brand. Mm-hmm. I think that's been the biggest hurdle for Skechers is that they're, you know, the first thing I, when I first got my first pair of Skechers running shoes, my first question was, why is it coming out under the Skechers name? Why wouldn't you just, it's a different division. Why wouldn't you come up with a cool sounding running name? Like instead of being a uh, sixth dimension, I still have why, don't, why, why don't you come out with, you know, Nike? Um, and, you know, they, they, they made a choice that that's where they were going to die on that sword. And I still think that today, a lot of consumers won't even try the product. And I do think it is a good product. They won't try it because they have a, like you said, an affiliation with the brand where they see the go walks or they see the light up shoes when they were kids and stuff like that, that like you said, the permission isn't there to be a serious uh, performance shoe. There's other things that go into, I think like the quality of the touch and feel of fabrics and, Mm -hmm. and the little nuances that like scream quality that, you know, you could, you could lean to, but for the most part, you're seeing, and that's the thing, I don't think it's that hard to make, and I could be an idiot here, it doesn't seem that hard to make a simple running shoe. Like, like if you look at what Puma brought out this year, it wasn't radical. It was the right foam, the right weight, fits good enough, but it was surprising to come from them, and you're like, okay, they're back in the game. And they were out. Mm-hmm. So for me, that's it's a, a very interesting story. Well, the one thing I, I will uh, guess about Puma, and I'm probably closer to right than wrong, is that they had nothing to lose yeah. to try to get back into the running game. So they probably were unencumbered by all the corporate pressures and all that, and they put the right team together, and they just did something very simple. Running is a very, very simple thing. There was a guy named Abe Lemons. He was a basketball coach for many years, and he was at Texas A&M, or I don't even know, and he kept getting fired. And <laughs> so he showed up at a press conference, and they said to him, hey, coach, if... Um, if you uh, lose this job, you get fired. Are you gonna uh, get try to get another job in basketball? He goes, hell no. He goes, I'm gonna come back as a track coach. It's the easiest thing in the world. All you have to do is go, son, go on out there, stay to your left and get back here as fast <laughs> as you can. And it's really not that hard. And it's the same thing with shoes. I, I think sometimes we tend to overthink it. You know, yeah. You don't hear anybody these days really over obsess about pronation and supination and you know high arches and flat feet and all that what they do is they don't talk about what the shoe does they talk about what the shoe can do for you those are the better brands that do that so trying to build a better mousetrap and trying to have a better shoe with with a brand that might not be believable in the space is a fool's errand yeah so i want to talk more about your time at asics and uh you know what what that was like for you or even any anywhere after uh after Nike kind of just, you know, cause you, cause you did go from 
uh, Merrill to Timberland to exist. And this might be out of order, by the way. But I want to know kind of how, you know, your time there and what it was like going to these different companies, some specializing in trails, some more in fashion, some more in running. Yeah, and and maybe a little bit about the cultures of the different companies because yeah. that's the thing. It's like you have to, when you're starting over, you know how to make a shoe or know what goes into that process. And you can set up the team to do the things you need to do. But I'm guessing that the secret sauce is is the brand and the politics behind doing it. Yeah, so uh, yeah, I'm fortunate. I've been to all these different brands. You know, I've been in the corporate version of the witness protection program <laughs> from brand to brand. Um, <clears throat> By the so, way, how does that happen? Because you talked about the uh, non-compete with Nike going to Reebok. How does that happen when you are going to these other different brands? Do you have non-competes each time or how's that Yeah, work? so <clears throat> that's interesting. I had been out on four non-competes for a total of two and a half years oh wow okay and uh i'm i think that non-competes are blown out of proportion it comes back from having laws particularly in silicon valley in its inception to protect companies and its intellectual properties right, yeah. right. and there's not a lot of legislation on non-competes as a matter of fact i think in the white house now they're trying to get rid of non-competes because they're used as a way almost to you know two companies that don't like each other it's it's it it's to harm the other company. I'm not going to let you have my best designer. Right. But really who you're harming is the designer. Yeah. So when you're told, I was lucky that each of my non-competes, I got 100% of my salary paid for by the company I was leaving. Okay. Now these young people are signing agreements that say you get 60%. And who could who could leave? Right. You can't take a 40% pay cut for six or 12 months. You know, so, and then, you know, the, and the other companies sometimes don't want to wait a year or even six months. So it's become an unnecessary stalemate in this industry. But, um, when I, when I left Nike, as I mentioned, I wanted to find out if I, if I could do something else, I, it, it was a tough thing to do at 47 years old and four kids, but I, I went to Reebok and I learned a ton of things. And you talk about Nike's culture, Nike's culture is, it's very you know, and I don't say this with disparagement, but it's very cult-like. It is a cult. It even has its own language. It's like its own island. Reebok uh, was like Avis. We try harder, <laughs> and um, you know, I and and I saw great talent at Reebok. And sometimes in the in the uh, co the competitor companies, you have to have great talent just to survive when yeah. you're competing against a massive giant. Um, I, when I went to Timberland, it's an interesting story. I, we had moved to New Hampshire. I had, I had promised each of my kids, I have four kids, I promised each of them that they could go to the same high school for four straight years. And Patrick was just getting out of eighth grade. And then when uh, Adidas uh, purchased Reebok and I was out with a whole bunch of other people, I actually went down to Under Armour before they launched footwear. There was a couple oh, of wow. guys I knew um, that uh, invited me down. I met Kevin and I got offered the job. And uh, I turned it down. I even flew back down on my own dime to meet with Kevin because I was enamored with his personality and his his drive and vision. And what year was this? This is uh, 2006. Okay. And so I ended up taking the job at Timberland um, because it was in New England. And even though I was away from home most of the week, you know, I, I allowed Patrick to have his four years in high school. And at Timberland there was, they, they couldn't make up their mind. Is it a casual boat shoe company? Is it an urban boot shoe company? Is it all of these things that were terrific, but you have to pick a lane. And I ended up becoming the co-president of the brand, which even proves the point, you know, 
if 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 a, you know one of our designers said, my goodness, if God wanted a car to have two steering wheels, he would have invented one. So a co-president even means we couldn't make up our mind. But I, I enjoyed my time there, and and then after that, I went back to Under Armour. I got a phone call from Kevin, and he says, you know, sometimes the timing in life is everything. And so Patrick had just graduated, so that's when I went down there, and um, you know, it, it was it was difficult. You know, first of all, it was an apparel company that had the culture of an apparel company and it competed against footwear companies that had the culture of footwear. So I had to build a team, hence Dumbrow, Fallon, and a few others, many others, that could bring in footwear culture, but also without bumping into the Under Armour culture. So that was that was a tough go of it. And I love the, you know, we're the underdog, David and Goliath type of thing. But um, the narrative used to be when I put on an Under Armour shirt, I'm the kid in the Midwest and I'm the hardworking mm -hmm. kid and I, did, I wasn't born with all the skills and talent. I put on that shirt, I'm empowered. And then Wall Street allowed the Under Armour narrative to change to, when are you gonna pass Nike? Now do the math. If, mm -hmm. if a company is 10 times larger than you and you grew 20% a year and that company grew at four or 5% a year, it's gonna take decades. But mm -hmm. it's a narrative, first of all, that the consumer doesn't care about. Nobody buys an Infinity because it's smaller or bigger than Lexus, right? Yeah. And then also it just made decision-making, it made it for all the wrong reasons, right? So, you know, signing a lot of schools and teams, you know, all of your marketing money was locked up in fixed costs and all that. Still, it's a fantastic brand and has done tremendously well in an industry that doesn't welcome newcomers, right? Sure. Then um, when I left uh, Under Armour, I went to Wolverine, which owns Merrill. Mm -hmm. Now here I am going, what am I doing? I'm going to my second outdoor company, Timberland, now Merrill. I, like, I'm from the Bronx. <laughs> I'm crime and pollution. You so know? you didn't never wear the Teva sandals? <laughs> My goodness, you're getting flip-flops, you know, that you bought in the, in the in Woolworths. I forgot you you're in Florida. <laughs> yeah, I was in Florida for a while, too. I did love that. But yeah. so I, I, here I am at an outdoor brand. I'm, I don't even like trail mix, never mind being at an outdoor brand. I'm a crime and pollution guy, as I said. <laughs> but what I learned there was that Merrill also had a core consumer, a she, more so than a he, with a couple of basic products. One was called the Jungle Mock. And there was, that, that consumer was aging. And I was trying to figure out, well, when they age, they buy less. So we need to start talking to somebody who's younger. And hopefully it doesn't damage the, the current business because you're bringing in a younger brand. You know, so it's, it's, they're all difficult tasks. Mm -hmm. Companies don't bring in presidents and CEOs because the business is going well. They bring them in to fix something, right? Yeah. So like in that situation where you are aimed to go transition to a younger crowd or maybe you're transitioning to another type, how do you, like, how do you navigate that transition? I just find that interesting because it's such a large task to take on. It, it's impossible. It's like, you know, um, when, when I joined uh, ASICS, I'll use this for context. When I joined ASICS, um, lovely people, uh, the chairman, um, we call him Oyama-san. His name is Motoy o Oyama. And uh, he's the son-in-law of the founder of the company. And uh, I flew to Japan just to meet him and sign my papers over tea and all that. And I said, so, so what's our strategy? And he says, um, uh, ASICS America is one billion in revenue. Now it needs to go to two billion. And I'm like, okay, um, <laughs> okay. What's our what's the plan? That's the result of the plan. What? No, that is the plan. Just get to two billion. And um, well, I said, well, we have two choices here. One is we can talk to all the uh, loyal ASICS consumers out there and ask them to buy twice as much. That'll get us to two billion. That would work. Or we can introduce this brand to people who don't know us 
or haven't currently chosen us. And we're not asking them to buy shoes from us and kick another pair off. How about in addition to rather than instead of? And I chose that path because the narrative to the consumer was we are an elite brand, marathoners. We have shoes like the Kayano, the Nimbus, all these wonderful products that are tried and true over the years and all that. That is fantastic. But getting from 1 billion to 2 billion isn't going to happen on that same narrative. Yeah. It's just, it, this, this is just math. This wasn't me trying to be renegade and go off and do cool things. Right. Keep in mind, Onitsuka Tiger, you know, had some great stuff in the archives. I think that that could have been a treasure trove to, to, you know, to help the brand. But it needed new consumers because that consumer is aging too. Sure. And so that was really, really hard. So I think with Merrill, it was the same thing. It's, you know, how do I talk to this younger consumer without pissing off she who loves this brand so much? Yeah. And I guess one of the things that I want to ask you about that too is you, how do you, I don't know, you have this challenge where you want to please investors if it's a public company, but then you also want to do something that's more exciting and fresh. And I know there has to be a time in your career where you saw a path forward, but you probably weren't allowed to take that path because you had to please investors. And I don't know, maybe describe, and you don't have to give us specifics, but something and how you navigated that as well. Yeah, it, it's it's hard. You you can you can play with your 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 vision for eighty days of every quarter, but the last ten days you're pleasing shareholders. <laughs> right. And um, you know, and it's hard. And you know, but I'm there's two types of presidents or CEOs. Some are the guys you bring in that can run a business. So the last guy left, he retired or he moved on or changed or whatever. He you come in, he he grew the business five percent. Maybe now you can grow it six percent a year. That's running a business. Some of these companies don't even know it, but they need to be built or rebuilt. Mm. And so I found myself as a wartime CEO. I, I'm not the type of guy that's going to go someplace. Eh, it's a nice, cool business. It runs itself. And I, we all got bored with the Jordan brand, the, the handful of us that were on that business, because the business just took off on its own. It was the building years. That was the attraction to me. Mm-hmm. It's hard to do. I, I remember a Wall Street Journal um, uh, uh, writer asked me years and years ago, he goes, I always hear CEOs, and you've said it two times in this talk, you always say um, chasing the quarter. And he goes, why use that term? I go, because we're trying to build athletic shoes for people who aren't athletic. <laughs> and that's really what it comes down to. So I guess I had my own principles and values that I learned out in the streets, right? Mm-hmm. And not only in the Bronx, but in the streets as a tech rep and Eakin, whatever. I wanted those to permeate every company I've been to because I've seen it work, right? And I did it only when I thought it was necessary to insert. But on the other hand, at the end of the day, you're judged by that analyst call, that Wall Street call. And, you know, it's not that I'm, you know, I don't understand that. I completely understand it and get it. But I wasn't trying to do things today for today. I was trying to do things today for tomorrow. And uh, because some of these companies are going to wake up one day and they're going to go, where did everybody go? Yeah. Well, that that leads me to a question because there's a big paradigm shift in how things get to market. And we're, I, I believe that we're part of the paradigm shift in that it used to be if you could get into running retail, you get your reps there, you get people to try on the shoe, you talk to the people that are working in the store and you tell them all the benefits of your shoe and make sure that they're bringing that box out when I come in with my size 10 and a half foot. And that's how people learned about shoes. And maybe people would buy in one or two colorways and that was your day. 
then if you're doing really well at those stores, I felt like some brands got really sleepy. And then along comes people online that are like, hey, I'm going to tell you more about the shoe. And I'm going to tell you it comes in all these different colors. You're going to be able to see it. And you can purchase it online. You don't need to go get fit by a professional necessarily. You know, it might be good the first time. So you get an idea of what you need. But after that, we're going to be your guide to, to what's going on. I feel like some brands jumped on that. Some brands were like, let's just stick with the plan. We've got our shelf space on these local running retailers. And they may have waited too long to acknowledge the shift. When you were working at some of these brands, um, you know, I know that even today, maybe possibly Under Armour's plan is to get into local running retail stores. Do you feel like brands see that change or the brands that you were working for saw it or maybe didn't see it? Yeah, I think you're right about maybe becoming complacent and sleepy and well, it worked. I mean, it worked 20 years ago. Why wouldn't it work now? Mm -hmm. Now back to Under Armour, keep in mind, it's legendary how they would go to a Dick store and put a, a rack of t-shirts in there and tip, you know, help tell the manager to make sure it sold, even though it wasn't an actual sale to Dick Sporting Goods Inc. And it's a legendary story. And that's how they, they grew their business, right? Um, run, running is different than that. I think the consumers, particularly people who, even if you're just, just casually excited about running, you're very educated about the product. You're very in tune to what's right for you. You're not that interested in a lemmings point of view, like everybody's going to wear, you know, an Adidas boost because everybody in school has one. You're going to do what's right for you. And so I think if you understand that the formula of just sending people in there and, you know, like uh, there's one big retailer on the West Coast where a uh, running retailer on the West Coast where every brand have to pay uh, a large sum of money a year to guarantee that the st store clerk would bring out a pair of shoes of your brand, even if the consumer didn't ask for it. Right. Oh, wow. So that means if, if somebody goes in and says, can I have, uh, you know, the Nike Pegasus, the Nike Pegasus, and he comes out with 10 pairs of shoes because every brand paid yeah. the money. So I think I like the idea. And I think you guys talk about yourselves. It's like a renegade brand. You're, you're not doing anything that's really renegade. What you're really trying to do is talk to people on their terms rather than on your terms. And that, it's as simple as that. And I think a lot of brands are afraid to make that shift because they think any shift in how you do business costs money. Not just in, in investment, but also in do you lose money as you make the transition? And some companies can't afford to go there. But the companies that want to be around for a long time and want to be notable, right? Think of a pyramid. You take a pyramid, and if you broke it into three pieces, the tip of the pyramid are runners. So I'm sitting across talking to two cool dudes, so, so I'm going to be <laughs> very, very serious about them I running. I didn't say it. So those are runners. <laughs> The next part of the pyramid, which is a bigger slice, is I call it people who wear running shoes. I'm mean, no, it's people who run. Excuse me. Okay. Okay. Five k, ten k. Going to support my family member who's got a sick. Whatever. Maybe go to the gym and wear right. shoes. And running's run. part of my routine, sure. right? Yeah. And then the biggest part of the pyramid is people who wear running shoes. Everybody eight months to 88 years old has on some form of an athletic shoe. It's even given birth to fashion brands mm -hmm. like All Birds and all that that are athletic inspired, right? Sure. But I think that whole tip at the top of runners is the, the, the formula needs to go back to just being with them and cultivating them, much like Sandy Bodecker did with the skate rats. It's just, 
it's understand it's understanding them as I said on their terms, not on yours, and and making sure that it's an ongoing twenty four hour always on dialogue. And I I know that sounds corny. I know it sounds old fashioned, but quite frankly, it works. And I'm going back a little bit again because I just wanted to follow up on one thing. But uh, when we're talking about companies that may may have been too complacent or didn't catch on to trends, is that a death now for a company or have you been a part of company or maybe you can give a good example of a company who maybe was operating as this like large behemoth, you know, this ship almost that you can't turn around, but were able to uh, maybe listen to the consumers or listen to new leadership that came in and transition back to a company that, you know, resonated with customers. Yeah. You know, this thing about trends, I mentioned earlier that when you see it as a trend, it's over. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and I really believe that Reebok, I'll give you a little history lesson here. Reebok hit a billion dollars in annual sales before Nike did. And it was in the mid eighties and it, and it got Nike out of its game. And then Reebok also hit a home run by accident with aerobics and women, women now belong to this horribly male dominated industry, mm-hmm. right? But then after that, Nike decided just to do their own thing, not to chase trends, not to try to get into aerobics. It would happen naturally and they would cultivate those businesses no matter how long it took. However, Reebok then shifted its game plan when Nike decided that there was an Air Jordan, then they're going to sign athletes. And then when, you know, they they, they try to follow the formula. And I think that's, first of all, the company doesn't need two Nikes. I mean, the, uh, the country doesn't need two mm-hmm. Nikes, the sports world. It needs people that have their own individuality. So determine who you are and let that be your calling card. And when things get tough, go back to who you are, not try to reinvent yourself. And I've seen too many companies just get out of their game that way. But there is a pressure. You know, these are publicly traded companies and, uh, you know, that's how the world goes round. And uh, it's not that I don't like that part of it. I actually enjoy talking to analysts and and shareholders and all that quite a lot. But that narrative isn't the same narrative as with consumers. But I don't know. I, I mean, you know, trends right now. Are, are there really trends? I don't know. I would say Puma's done a good job coming back in after being out. But, you know, as we're getting a little long here, I'm going to say, I want to ask if you could give us maybe three tips of stuff that you've learned through your career from working with all these different brands, if you could kind of bring it down to like lessons learned kind of thing. Do you think there's something that you could pull out for that? Yeah, I think um, I used to get tons of mail from kids or people that would like to get into the business because they're so enamored with it. And um, you'd be surprised. It's not always like that ESPN commercial where you walk down the hallway and there's a hip, hip, or hey, with or hey, Posada sitting in a cube and all that. It's it. They very much are, are businesses and run that way. Yes, they all have their cool, colorful, uh, you know, uh, parts of it, but that's, it's, it's a business, right? And it's, it's there to serve a need, but also to generate money. By the way, that's how you pay you. But I just, I do believe that you need to know somebody and crack the code that way. I think this whole idea about having the prettiest resume and all that, that's nothing. I've told my kids growing up, I said, uh, your resume will get you an interview, but it's your character that'll get you your job. So my first tip is get to know somebody within the company and find and try to navigate a company that way. Second thing is find company, go to companies that you feel that your values are reflected in the company, not just you like their shoes, Mm -hmm. but you like their values. There's a lot of places that I've worked where I thought the product was wonderful, but maybe the company vibe wasn't. 
So I think that's one thing. Try to match your values. The, the third thing is make Tuesday better than Monday. You got to work hard. There, there's no skating in this industry. It's a hard, hard, competitive, at times cutthroat industry. You have to work hard every day and you have to earn your keep every single day. You just don't get in and that's the victory. Getting in is just the starting line. All right. Tips. That's pretty, that's pretty <laughs> good tips. Now, I mean, obviously in this day and age, it's so easy. The first tip, getting to know somebody in the company, you can reach out over Instagram. You can reach out like email. There's so many different ways. Well, people are so much more accessible than, you know, 20, 30 years ago. I think it's funny how easy it is, but still how few people actually take, take advantage, advantage of, of it, it and do it. And not in a way that's uh, and in a way that can just help that person, you know, not in a way that's like taking their time, but saying, how can I help you? It's such an easy thing. To Adding do. value to them. Yeah. And yeah. it's so few people do it. I think I was, um, I, I enjoyed speaking at different colleges and universities and, um, after it, uh, it, invariably somebody will come up and say, can I have your business card? And I'd go, no, you want to get, <laughs> you want to get in touch yep. with me, earn it. Yeah. I'm easy to find, yeah. but giving you my business card, isn't it? Yep. And then I always, a point you made, I, I, I always, reward persistence mm. i think persistence is important on the other hand do your homework about the company you don't, yeah, don't how many passionate letters <laughs> right. i would receive uh, when i was at under armor people wanted to belong and join under armor and they'd spell armor wrong yeah. in the Ooh, under armor yeah that's the key do your that's homework fellas one. yeah and girls well i know i mean seriously though that's basically how i ended up here right like i mean relationships i yeah. joined faster bastards became friends i mean I try to become friends with everyone. Relationships are everything in my life. That's literally how I got any job. Um, and then we were having beers. We were having beers, <laughs> and uh, I. But I had had it in my mind for a couple of years to that it would be awesome to work here someday. You know, whether whether or not I knew that would be a possibility in any way, I thought it would be a cool thing. We ended up having beers, talking, and but at the same time, I asked to review for you. I asked. To edit, I volunteered to edit yeah. articles. I volunteered to do these things, which are all, you know, just things helping the brand. And on the other side of it, at the time, I didn't have any money to pay rent. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we had to figure it out. It, it is, I actually, you know, we had said it earlier when we started. Sometimes you just got to ask for stuff and you just got to be out there because I, I we, I talked to Megan and, we figured out a way and we took a risk and the risk paid off. And, and now, uh, you know, we've grown quite a bit since Robbie's come on. So it's been fantastic for both us, the brand, everything in, in combined, but yeah. Yeah. And the, my avocation is my vocation. So yeah. it's like, it's definitely all come together. And it pays sure. off. It's your persistent. So yeah. Now you're not encumbered by being tied to a brand. You can have a complete independent opinion. So if you're going to go out running tomorrow, <laughs> what brand are you putting on your feet? Um, so full disclosure, I don't know what happened at the dinner table at my house, but I have four kids and I always like to say <laughs> it wasn't at kids. the dinner table. I had, yeah, that wasn't at the dinner table, but that's where they ended up. But uh, I like to say I have one of each, a boy, a girl and a brat and a pain in the ass. But I can't tell them <laughs> apart. Two of them are uh, directors at Adidas in Portland. Ah. And my youngest is a graphic designer for Vans. Okay, so um, cool. whatever was said at the dinner table rubbed off. So uh, <laughs> currently I am wearing Adidas, Adidas as it should be pronounced. Sure. 
And the reason I'm doing that is not because of the family commitment. It's because it's a brand that I hadn't really tried. Explore. You know, all, all runners and we always, even no matter who you work for, you always are trying other brands. Uh, places like Nike, it's verboten, but right. you know, nonetheless. Really, I think the education part of well, it. Well, I, th I think they that's done, but you have to do it three in the morning, you know, in dark neighborhoods. Um, <laughs> but I've been wearing Adidas right now and I'm trying to enjoy the ride. Um, of course, I was wearing Asics after I left Asics because I hadn't spent enough time running or working out when I was at ASICS. It was a very, very hard job. One no, year right. I flew Ironic. about 322,000 miles just on Delta. Oh, so, and that doesn't include uh, trips to Japan, but um, I, I'm very interested in on, I haven't given them a shot yet. Um, I just had- uh, a, What size are you? I'm a, uh, a seven, so I don't. I really don't oh, have feet. Oh, uh, this is the first person ever. I'm a seven Rod and a half. Just, we just found somebody else that's like a seven yes. and a half. And now, like, my father what? said, you don't have feet, you have hooves. Yeah, <laughs> so, um, but, I was you know, gonna say, we, we, brought, we have, I, I would have given you a pair of Ons to take with you, but uh, they're, they'd be a little I'm big. A, I'm a seven and a half, and actually Ons run a little bit big anyways, so they're yeah. usually, anyways. So, but yeah, yeah. cool. That's good. To All know. right. And uh, is there any brand right now that you think that we should have our eye on that we don't know about? Yeah, I would say this. I, I said it a year ago and I don't want to sound like, you know, I'm a prophet, but I, I, of course I was talking mostly to investors, but I'm not surprised at Puma's success. Keep a, a close eye on Puma. I would watch uh, Hoka 1-1 and on as the pressure comes to grow revenue and will they have to go into different channels of distribution to do that, which could you know, it could hurt their position. Um, I, uh, I I definitely watch Dumbrow and Fallon. Those two guys, um, they, they're right. They, there's a lot that they wanted to do but couldn't do, you know, when we've worked together in the past. So I, I think you have to watch the small brands. And then um, I, the other thing I would say is um, have a discerning eye about um, the, the, the big brands, whether it's a Nike or Asics, and have a discerning eye for only this reason. They have, they're so massively successful and have been, but when are they going to do something that breaks out a little bit? You know, you say, I was watching the triathlon at the Olympics last night and watched that guy yeah. from Norway just break out. In his bikini end. suit. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, definitely keep an eye on Puma. Uh, I'm a big fan. All right, cool. All, All right, right, anything else we want to wrap up with? Uh, other than, uh, I'm guessing post running was beer and pizza. Is it still beer and pizza? Yeah, and I think that's why I work out. I mean, I have to earn that every day. And, uh, you know, um, maybe I'll have you guys. I, I signed up to do a podcast. Maybe I'll have you join me. On All right. Oh, it's called amazing. Chasing Four. Yes. All right. I, I won't I, I won't do that, though. No, I will not try to pay the four-minute <laughs> no. mile. Oh, <laughs> well, it could be Chasing Four Quarters yeah, there in, we in, go. The, in the business world, or it could be Chasing Four Kids. All Don't right. try that either. I no. Um, I did have one more question. And I read somewhere that you get up at 4.30 a.m. every day. Is that correct? It was correct. It was? Yeah. Okay. And I did that. Um, I think you need to have peace and quiet. You know, my, my uh, youngest son, Pat, and I uh, would get together in Manhattan when he lived there. When I was working at A6, he goes, what does a CEO do? And I said, a CEO does four things. He looks or she looks. She looks. She listens. She thinks. Then she decides. The 4.30 in the morning was the thinking part. You need time to think. It was I used to call it like open-eyed meditation. I wasn't thinking about I have to pick up the dry cleaning or change my oil. I was letting all my thoughts rush over me because all the looking and listening, observing what goes on around you, which is, which is a skill, 
Um, all of that helps form a decision. So thinking about the decision, is it going to be a palatable decision a year from now? Is it going to go against the grain of the past? Is it right for the future? All of those things required a lot of thinking, but it made the deciding very interesting. So 4.30 in the morning is why I got up early. Now, that's kind of interesting for me because I feel like I do that thinking part actively when I'm running. So I, I take that time when I'm running to kind of like process things. I also find it's one of my most creative parts of my day when I'm out there. And I also meditate, but that's when I try to not, not be think. thinking. Sure. Um, but the the running for me does that. Did, did you not find that running did that for you? So it still does. So I don't get up at 4.30 in the morning. I hurt my back severely about a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. So I'm doing power walking. I'm the goofiest guy on the boardwalk <laughs> in Long guys. Beach, New York. But uh, <laughs> pull that cap down, nobody knows. But to your point, I don't listen to music. I just want to go out there. And that's when the thoughts come to me and are unencumbered. So that's when I do my thinking. So I don't want to confuse it with meditation. But mm -hmm. thinking is really, really important. And it's a process that takes over you if you let it not something that you have to mechanically work at yeah i love it all right well gene thanks so much for joining us today it was a great conversation i wish we could talk for like four hours yeah I, that, <laughs> this is one of those ones where i feel like if we just let it ramble we could uh go on we'd have to do like a three-parter or something like that well but, why don't yeah. we do it again sometime yeah that's pizza and beer that's a little, like little that. truth serum that sounds uh, like perfect. That. <laughs> actually maybe off the record <laughs> we'll take it there's a taco place around here that's amazing <laughs> I love it. All right. Well, thanks so much again. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon. All my pleasure. Thanks. You guys are cool dudes and you're running a cool biz. So keep at it. All right. Thank Be true you. to your school. All right, guys, it's time to wrap this one up. And uh, you know what? I got a lot of messages this week oh, about people nice. who listen to the end. Did you see someone su what suggested what we call it? W what do we call it? Uh, it was. Uh, Is it good? Yeah. It sounds like it's good. It was called uh, The Last Drop Club. Oh, oh, I what like a that. Fun club. Yeah. All right. So I'll tell you who's in the last drop club this week. We got Austin, and this one I always two C's in Italian would be like a chess sound. Is it a chess sound? Yeah. So it's Austin. Obviously, Rocky. I know how to, oh, sorry. Okay. Yeah. Sorry <laughs> about it. He just talked right over your name. I was going to say Frankie Dehane. No. <laughs> it's Austin Brocky, Katie Jensen. Nicole Hill Cruson, Dom with a lightning bolt. Whoa, lightning yeah. bolt Dom. Dom with a lightning We're bolt. We're naming our kids with emojis these days. Yeah. Rich Fishing. Oh, do you think like like he likes to go fishing? I I don't know. I like it. I like it too. This guy's cool. Reed Show Schroeder from H Town. That's Houston for people who don't know H Town. H Town. Oh, Houston. Yeah, yeah. Reed Schroeder. Schroeder. And then a young gentleman from Baltimore named David Cadis. Oh, I've heard of him. Yeah. Yeah. He gets around. Okay. So that's it. We thank you guys for listening to the end. If you want to be called out at the end of our podcast, just DM us or send us a message that says, hey, I love listening to the end. I don't know. Maybe we'll get T-shirts made for, for people that listen to the end. I the don't last know. drop club? The yeah. last drop that's club. That's what someone, I think that's what she even suggested. <laughs> okay. Maybe we'll get that done. Want to thank everybody for listening, of course. We're going to thank Robin, because we always do. That's Meg's mom. Say hi. Hi, Mom. Robbie, you want to say hi to your mom? Yep. Hi, Mom. I know you're not listening. And Robbie's mom, I will turn my shirt inside out right now uh, just to honor you guys. Mm. But Wait, why is that? Because she doesn't like skulls. 
Oh, that's right. Do you have? Oh, yeah. I mean, you have a rat. Bastard. Dead, you dead know rat. Nick's rat. cutting that out of this podcast. That's close now enough. that's just going to be a weird add-on. Nick, I, if you cut that Guns and Roses part out, I'm going to be mad. <laughs> yeah, don't do it. Yeah. And then also, the hidden track is exciting this week. So yeah. get excited <laughs> about that. Got to get excited about the hidden track. Yeah. Is exactly. there anything else? Thanks mm. to all our listeners. Yeah, and guys, enjoy your run. Enjoy your week. And, you know. Get in those fall marathon training miles. Yeah, hit us up. Be in that Strava group on uh, Strava. Oh, and if you are in the peak training, getting ready for a fall marathon, we just released a really good podcast on all things peak training and nutrition on Fuel for the Soul. Yeah, I need to listen to that. You do. Check it out. All right, peace. Bye. Bye.